The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Dharma talks might not be so safe. Because <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk about uh, corpses today. So hopefully, some of you knew that was coming. The, um, so um, it turns out that in a number of religious traditions, some of the people who are the, have devoted themselves to serious, a life of serious practice, usually people considered to be monastics, uh, will adopt a practice of looking death right in the eye, not avoiding it. And in Catholicism, it's called memento mori, remembering death. And there's all kinds of uh, wonderful little stories of Catholic monks and maybe nuns who, um, who will do some various kinds of death contemplations. One of them that I'm fond of is, uh, not that I want to do this, but somehow I find it evocative, is uh, they have this little room where they live, just a monastic cell, I guess. But uh, in the corner of the room, they have that coffin they're going to be buried in. And so they, you know, that's that's where I'm going. And uh, recently, I, I was, you know, read a little bit more about uh, green burials. And there's a green burial site in Marin. Someone I know went there to see it. And they had, um, they said, oh, they had really beautiful. Um, uh, what are they called? You know, like when you put a, a sheet over someone who's dead. Shroud. Yeah, really beautiful shrouds. And um, and I thought, beautiful shroud. I thought. What, maybe I should get a beautiful shroud. The shroud that the shroud that I'll get somehow buried or burned in or something, and I'll hang it on my wall um, at the retreat center. I have a room that's just kind of kind of my room there. So I thought in that room at the retreat center, when I'm at the retreat, because of kind of that's. And uh, Buddhist monastics also will do death contemplations, and uh, sometimes they'll go to the morgue, sometimes they'll go to uh, cemeteries. Sometimes they'll go and watch uh, open cremations of bodies. <clears throat> Sometimes they'll, <clears throat> they'll go to an, uh, anatomy labs and um, cadavers and medical centers and just, just to kind of really face <clears throat> this idea. Excuse me. And so the idea is uh, to somehow contemplate this very central existential issue of death and look at it right in the eye. And many people who are not kind of devoted their life to that kind of lifestyle uh, easily avoid it. They're, you know, we're busy, too busy for dying, you know, too busy for looking at it and, too, you know, and we're too involved in the world and, and it also can seem like a downer to, to contemplate it. But uh, it's not meant to be a downer for people do it. It's supposed to somehow have very powerful uh, effect in a beneficial way in people's lives. In the modern era, a book that's been very popular is Stephen Levine's book, One Year to Live. It's not exactly looking death in the same way with having your coffin in your room or a skull on your, next, to you, next to your pillow when you're sleeping or something. Um, it's, um, but still, it is uh, somehow contemplating this existential fact that we all have, that we're going to die. And, uh, and what, is that, uh, what light does that cast on our life? How do we reflect on our life? How do we think about it? What's important? Priorities? Um, 
And uh, so there's a lot, a lot of, I'll say more about the benefits of this contemplation of death, but it's a very common thing to do. In this uh, particular text that I'm teaching these days about the Satipatthana Sutta, Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, there's a um, series of nine contemplations on the decay of a corpse. And um, I told my wife this at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I think she asked what I was going to teach about. And my, my wife hikes a lot. She's a big hiker. She's about to leave uh, for the to do the for six months to walk the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada. So um, you know she's a serious hiker. And um, and she said, "Oh, if you're a hiker, uh, you see uh, decaying corpses all the time." You know, the animals and insects and birds and you know, all the stuff, they're, they're dead on the side of the trail or in the trail and, and various states of decay, she said. You see them all the time. And she said it like completely like it was a natural, everyday kind of thing. This is what you see. This is what is there. And then we went out down to the, our little garden and we have a kind of strawberry bed and that's been sitting over winter. And so... Um, we were kind of it needed to be cleaned up, and what that means is that uh, all the old dead uh, strawberry leaves, which are kind of matted underneath what's still alive, they need to be removed because otherwise the strawberries will, when they grow, they'll sit in those matted, rotting leaves and rot themselves. So, uh, so we started pulling out the old, rotted, you know, dead leaves, and she said, "You see here too? <laughs> is it you know?" decaying corpses, now strawberry plants. So she, she kind of put it all in the same category, uh, human decay and, and uh, the, you know, it's all a natural part of the natural world. One of the most famous Buddhist monks, teachers in the 20th century was a monk named Buddha Dasa. And, um, and he uh, lived much of his life uh, kind of out, outdoors, I mean, he had a house, but a teeny, teeny little place. He lived in the monastery, but he, you know, mostly had a table outside and chairs outside, and and he would meet with his monks outside, and they wouldn't have in, indoor dharma talks. They would have them all outdoors in the woods. And, except it does rain there a lot, so they had a, one place they had um, in the monastery. They had this very big, it was mostly like you know pillars with a roof on, and so all the sides were open. I guess they went there. Sometimes it was raining a lot. They could have talks or meditate together or something. And hanging from the rafters uh, were two um, uh, skeletons. So, and one of them said, it was a little sign at the bottom hanging from the feet. It said, Miss Thailand, 1932. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know, you know, mostly the men are laughing. <laughs> so, um, so you know, so I guess the monastics who came in there to meditate and hear Dharma talks, you know, that was there. It was there definitely for some kind of teaching purpose. And, you know, you can imagine maybe what it is. And uh, but uh, his instructions for when he was, uh, when he died was simply be put out in the forest. Uh, it was his last gift so that the monastics, the people there could come and meditate by the corpse and watch it over the days and the weeks, watch it decay. 
that that was something he thought was benefit would be beneficial for them to see this natural process that we're all part of and uh, and to really face it and look at it and be with it um, but certainly not to depress them but to actually inspire their practice to inspire their looking deeply at themselves and um, but he didn't get his wish because this is the danger if you become f- famous and revered. You don't get left alone in the forest to decay. <laughs> so he had a huge, you know, the king came, I think it was a big event, and he had to have the full full high church cremation and everything. The, um, so in the ancient text, the suttas, the... Buddha gave a number of reasons uh, why people would contemplate death. And uh, uh, one of them was to not be too enamored with the physical body. And there are a few people here and there who are a little bit enamored in maybe not their own body, but other bodies. And, and so that can kind of put different perspective on things uh, for some people. And, and uh, it's usually considered to be kind of an emergency medicine for certain uh, lustful type people is to contemplate the corpses. So, you know, if you're that kind of person, maybe it's good medicine. The, um, uh, the other reason is that it, um, it's meant to help overcome a particular kind of conceit. And um, so anything that overcomes conceit, when we're too wrapped up in ourselves, caught up in ourselves, we somehow think we're special. Or, so a lot of attachment to the I, me, myself, that goes on and causes a lot of suffering for human beings. And more, more maybe, maybe more important than causes suffering, it keeps us from being free. And freedom is one of the great things to really experience freedom. And so, um, but the particular uh, conceit that um, uh, was emphasized for this, this contemplation of death is a con- uh, 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 it's kind of a, a very innocent conceit because usually we think of conceit in Buddhism as it's I'm worse than people, others, I'm better than others, or I'm equal to others, which is kind of fascinating. In English, we usually think conceit means you're better than everyone else. But in Buddhism, thinking you're worse than others is also a kind of conceit. It's a kind of way of getting attached to who you are. And then the idea that you're equal to others, I mean, this is United States after all. You know, <laughs> and you're not even supposed to see yourself as being equal. That's a conceit too. So what's left? What's left is you don't compare yourself to anyone. And that's where there's freedom to be found. And, um, and so, uh, but the conceit that is not that kind, the conceit is a conceit of I am, of emness. And that's a pretty basic, pretty central conceit, you know, that, or idea. People don't think of it as conceit. But there can be a very um, a strong, maybe intuitive or felt sense of just the emness of my being. And uh, I remember once I was visiting a fr- uh, friend of mine and his daughter was just beginning to uh, talk. Just little, he had some words, and enough words for the way. And, um, and I pointed, uh, so I was with him, and I pointed to her father and said, who's that? Daddy. Who's that? Mama. And then I pointed to her, who's that? And she said, I am. And so I said, oh no, who's that? And she said, I am. And I'm slow to learn. So <laughs> I asked a, a, a third time, like, who, who, who's that? 
And she stood up straight and stood up tall, kind of, and looked at me and said, I am. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. I thought it was pretty wonderful. But, uh, you know, and I felt bad about myself, you know, giving, wanting a name and to limit her and, you know, put her into a box of, you know, you know wow, you know, just it's enough just to be, right? But anyway, uh, as wonderful as that is, and we all, I wish it all on you, for all of you to have that, it can be a, a very deep attachment, clinging to even that sense of emness. It can seem pretty ultimate, pretty wonderful, pretty essential, pretty universal, pretty something. <clears throat> but there can be uh, subtle, and subtle doesn't mean minor, subtle very uh, uh, attachment to even that sense of emness that we hold on to and it's important. And Buddhism, the ultimate freedoms of, freedom of Buddhism, uh, goes beyond even that sense of I am or emness. And so this contemplation of death somehow is supposed to do that. The other reason for the contemplation of death uh, sometimes is, um, especially certain, certain forms of death meditations in Buddhism, is to develop concentration, to get concentrated. And one of the purposes of concentration then is to have insight. And the purpose of insight is to help us let go of our clinging, our attachments in some deep way. And, um, and so this death contemplation in this text I'm going to read you, uh, I think of it as a guided meditation. And um, it's presented kind of as if um, it's um, a, uh, a reflection or an, uh, a visualization. I think it uh, probably works best if a person can visualize what's being described. And think of it as a journey, and you follow, it, follow the journey along. Uh, you're pulled along, uh, both to get concentrated, but also it's a journey to, uh, from something that's more complicated to something more simple. And that's one of the classic ways that Buddhist meditation unfolds. We go from the complicated life of urban, city, things, all these things, and our mind gets quieter and quieter, and our perceptions, what we think about, get simpler and simpler and simpler. And that the more peaceful we get, the more simple our concerns are. And the more simple is our, our perceptions of what's going on. Uh, you know, there was a car that just went by. And, um, wow, I wonder what car that was. That was a nice sound. I need to have a nicer sound tiny car. My mind is not very quiet if I'm having those thoughts. But if I just go, oh, oh that was a car. My mind is more peaceful, right? But if my mind goes... Just kind of hear the sound and it kind of vibrates inside. That's kind of more peaceful. So the idea of you know, the mind goes more and more simple. It's not making stories about things anymore. It's not bringing in the past and the future. And so this journey of simple, simple, simple. And that uh, in some places, um, the description is almost, it is like um, the mind is like a cord, a, r- a rope. And maybe the rope is stretched taut somehow. And the weather, the wind and the rain and this everything, sun, beats down on this, uh, this rope. And slowly it begins to wear away. And as it gets, uh, wears away, it gets thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. Until at some point there's just a little teeny little thread holding it together. And then at some point that thread goes and the, and the, and the rope is free. The rope breaks, breaks, breaks off. And so the same way with the mind, 
that uh, the mind can be taught and tense from our concerns, our attachments, our fears, our desires, our lusts, and all kinds of things, our preoccupations. And our, that cord, that's, you know, if, that's, if you use the idea of a cord, can be not only t- strong and tough, it can be all knotted up. In fact, the Buddha used the word knot to describe some of the attachments that we have in our mind. But as the mind gets this quiet, this journey to a quieter, stiller mind, uh, the knots untangle, and the the cord, the rope in the mind, uh, the mind itself kind of gets thinner and thinner and thinner. Thinking gets thinner and thinner and thinner, uh, and thinking thinking becomes less and less uh, solid, and and our concerns become less and less substantial, and things get thinner and thinner and thinner as the mind gets quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter, and at some point the equivalent of the rope breaking happens to the mind. Now, maybe that's not a nice image, but uh, it's a beautiful thing. Because then, then the shackles, what ties the mind down, has been, uh, you know, the mind's been freed from that. So this is a kind of a journey of that. Looking at uh, using the contemplation of a corpse as a visualization or as a reflection. And I imagine that I've never really done this as a meditation practice. I'm talking about something that I just assume that people do. Um, uh, That uh, if uh, people would do this over and over again uh, as a meditation practice and memorize it and be able to kind of really get in the flow of it. And the more we do it, uh, the more concentrated we become. It's uh, uh, more absorbed in the practice. And then uh, this idea of this journey uh, becomes more and more easy to do. It's the mind kind of follows the path over and over again and then comes to the place where just things just disappear. So, um, and the last thing I'd like to say, uh, kind of repeating a little bit, uh, how much of this is a natural process that we don't see in our society. Um, Bob Stahl, who's a teacher in Santa Cruz, a Vipassana teacher there, he sent me an email this uh, week <coughs> just a couple of days ago, saying, my wife and I, uh, we just went to this new green burial site in Half Moon Bay. And it's kind of a little old, and it's um, a town of, there used to be a town called Parissima, and then I don't know how much of it's a town anymore, but there was a cemetery, and the Coastal Land Trust somehow got ownership of of that uh, old, you know, 100-year-old cemetery, and they're kind of redoing it to become a cemetery again, but a green burial site. And Bob Stahl was all excited. He said, my wife and I went there, and that's where we're going to go. And he's really into it because it's ecological. It's, you know, it's, cremation turns out to be you know, not so ecological. A lot of energy. And, and, uh, and uh, so he, he was like delighted, right? Wow. Natural process. And... Um, and then I, th- I thought about that and th- do I want to go and be buried in the fog? <laughs> you know, it might not be so nice. <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, what, what, where would I like to be buried? And I thought, well, I wonder if I can get away with being buried at our retreat center. Would that, would that work? We buried our cat there. Um, but this natural process of decay, we all go through it. And our society often um, doesn't see that. And, you know, it's kind of hidden from us. We went to, um, someone in our community died. 
this last year. And uh, so I was asked to go to the crematorium. And they had a nice chapel uh, in, uh, you know, for people who were going to do some memorial service of the person who's died. And, and uh, the man was in his cardboard coffin on a kind of altar or something and we did a little memorial service and what was a little unusual for the people who worked there at the crematorium uh, was we all wanted to go back and uh, as the body was put into the oven and uh, and what I'm telling you the story was that uh, so we all piled into the back and you know the, the, the chapel was kind of nice but as you go through two little doors and get into the back room, um, it just looks like a dingy, industrial, kind of crowded, I don't know, boiler room. <laughs> you know, it was nothing, you know, it was like, wow. Um, you'd think that, so what I mean, what I told, told me is it's very rare that anybody wants to be there for that. And, uh, but, you know, that we wanted to be there and be the whole, whole time. And, and the spouse, who was along, wanted me to push the button to start the fire. So this idea of really being there and that kind of experience and facing it and being present for it is uh, very touching and I think very meaningful for some people. And it's a natural process. It, people die all the time. I was kind of amused. I kind of like this. Maybe it's just, I have a weird humor or something. But, um, okay, am I talking too much today? I'm just <laughs> going off on all these little ideas that come up. I'm not, not avoiding the text, but <laughs> I, I feel kind of, I feel kind of uh, cozy or I feel kind of tender. And so my mind's kind of following these tender memories and ideas that come up. So hopefully, hopefully it's okay with you. So um, um, there was some parody of human life that I read and uh, the parody was about people who say that, um, you know, birth, you know, the baby was born, it was a miracle. Wow. Our babies were born, it was a miracle for sure. You know, but they say, miracle. Yes, it's a miracle. And it happens, you know, a few million times every day. <laughs> you know, it's like such, such a completely natural and ordinary and you know, normal process, birth and death, that, you know, and we make it this big thing which maybe we should, I don't know, but it is still a normal thing, a natural thing. And, and what happens when we relate to it that way? Does that shift our relationship? Or what prevents us from seeing it that way? And what do we bring, what do we pile on? And what baggage or extra stuff do we pile on these kinds of momentous events that shouldn't be happening, but they seem to happen anyway? So to face this, to face death and dying and have a healthy relationship is certainly part of the value of contemplating death and dying. And as I've said here a few times over the years and recently, um, we train people here to be Buddhist chaplains to offer spiritual care in hospitals and hospices in different settings. And every year we take the group to um, a um, anatomy lab to see the cadavers because uh, it's very important that people are offering spiritual care in settings where people die uh, that they have some familiarity and comfort with uh, death and dying. And so they're able to go see it and then kind of look at their reactions and the responses and, and work with it and kind of see the other side. And so here, this is uh, one way to do this, is to do this contemplation. 
And uh, I don't know if you want to uh, try to listen to it as a guided meditation um, and uh, somehow take it in with different kind of ears than maybe trying to learn something. So the Buddha here is speaking to the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus is a monastic. And um, and again, it's uh, they're just, you know, group of people who tend to want to face their existential issues head on. Bhikkhus. As though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter. That bhikkhu compares the same body with the corpse. This body of mine also is is of the same nature. It will be like that corpse. It is not exempt from that fate. Again, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, or various kinds of worms, a bhikkhu compares his own body thus, this body of mine is of the same nature. It will be like that corpse. It is not exempt from that fate. <clears throat> Again, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews. Um, a bhikkhu compares the same body with his corpse. This body too is of the same nature as the corpse. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Again, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood held together with sinews. And then I'll abbreviate it. And it goes on to the next one. A skeleton without flesh and blood held together with sinews. Or one were to see a corpse disconnected, the bones disconnected, scattered in all directions. Here a hand bone, there a foot bone, here a shin bone, there a thigh bone, there a hip bone, there a backbone, there a rib bone, there a breastbone, here an arm bone, there a shoulder bone, here a neck bone, there a jaw bone, here a tooth, there a skull. So too Bhikkhu compares the same body with that. This body too of mine is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that faith. 
Again, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, bones bleached white, the color of shells. And then see one where the bones are heaped up, more than a year old. Or then one were to see the bones rotted and crumbled to dust. A bhikkhu compares the same body with the corpse. This body of mine too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. It too will blow away in the wind. Oh, so this is offered in this text as a way of developing strong, concentrated mindfulness. <laughs> that the ability to be really present and aware uh, uh, and then to do, have this heightened awareness which becomes the field or, the, or there becomes the medium through which this simplification process can occur where the mind gets simpler and simpler as it lets go of its preoccupations and thoughts. But the awareness is kind of like the, the medium in which that can occur. So you want to have this very strong, established mindfulness, awareness for this to occur. And for some people, uh, uh, the presence and even the contemplation of death uh, is one way to, um, to um, you know, to become present. And I've, I've, I've done that for myself. There are times when I've been troubled by things. And at some point it felt like I was too attached to the whole phenomena that I was troubled by. It just didn't seem, seem like I was stuck in kind of a loop of, that wasn't so useful. And so then, okay, so then I said, I, I, I'm gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I would kind of, in my mind's eye, uh, I have a way in my mind's eye of kind of looking death right in the eye. And so I was like, okay, death, you know, and so. And that kind of would clear things up. And then it was easier to kind of move on. So um, what was that like for some of you to hear that? Because uh, I'm very curious about, um, you know, I offered you some ideas of how this is beneficial, but uh, what was that like? And was anything beneficial of somehow going along that journey of those, that decaying corpse? And I'm curious to hear from some of you. And it doesn't have to be big, it could be a small thing. Yeah, it felt like uh, death accompanying life right here, right now, with some perception involved with it. Looking into the future. Say the last part? Yeah. Felt like there was some perception involved with it and looking toward the future. Mm -hmm. Your future. Yeah. Yours too. Really? <laughs> now you're telling me? <laughs> no, I thought I was the one who was exempt. <laughs> so someone else, please. Thank you, Bill. Yes, sir. straight. Thank you. 
I just have a very short story to tell. Hold it close. Closer? Yeah. There Is it go. good now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was traveling in a historic town in Portugal mm -hmm. some time ago and visited a very nice, a gorgeous Catholic church. And next to it, there was a, um, a somewhat large room that we were encouraged to visit. Full of skeletons. Yes, skeletons, skulls, bones of all sizes and shapes. But the most uh, amazing thing was the plague that was on top of everything. It said, of course, in Portuguese, but something like that. We, the bones who are here, for yours we await. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was kind of creepy. I didn't feel very comfortable at all. <laughs> Yeah, I took my 14-year-old son to a church in Rome where um, it was like that. It was a cellar. It was a big, big cellar. And all these bones, but they were, uh, they were arranged artistically. Uh -huh. It was beautiful. What you can do, you, what you can do with uh, bones is, if you're an artist, it's quite something. And, I mean, they, and they were doing it for hundreds of years, so it's kind of really, it was layers and layers. Yeah, layers and layers and shelves and shelves up to the top. It was amazing. So what else, how was it meditation here too? So I found it very relaxing, actually. And um, was sort of visualizing as you were talking. And towards the end of the meditation, just this strong sense of being part of nature. Mm. Very nice. Thank you. Someone else? Yes. Yeah. Um, I was appreciated this because, in a way, I wanted to do this. Um, and I, in the meditation, uh, the fact that it was repeated, you know, you're looking at this idea and then it's repeated again and it's me, yeah, or you were um, sort of helped bring it home. I, it also seemed that, um, yeah, by the end, it was sort of like being, I don't know if it's Georgia O'Keefe or what, just out in the desert with bones. It was quite beautiful. I mean, it, it seemed at that point not me so much. Mm, nice, mm. nice. And that's kind of also the direction of the meditation practice as you get simpler and simpler. It's not me anymore. It's nature. <clears throat> it's only been in the last two years that I have felt like my parents are starting to decay a bit. And I don't think about it a whole lot. I think mostly because I don't want, I don't want to. But this uh, your talk tonight and the meditation both have given me a little bit of a sense of humor about that <laughs> and, a, and a grounding like yeah it, it's totally fine and it's not really a big deal like I can be really attached to it sort of what you were saying about the miracle of life yeah. you know baby's born <laughs> somebody died like, well, yeah. uh, and that it's just it's it's not just normal it's, I guess the wrong word but it's commonplace yeah yeah and so, that, that puts some ease with it. Yeah, great, great. I appreciate what you said very much. It was very significant, and I appreciate it. 
and um, and I want to respond uh, with lots of respect and seriousness and what might sound like a little humor as well. Only in the last couple of years you realize your parents are decaying. <laughs> you're, you're no spring chicken. <laughs> they were really young when they had us. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're on your way too. <laughs> I'm slowing down. I'm not decaying. Oh, oh. <laughs> Fair enough. I think Bill started it. <laughs> So, please, now no one's going to dare say anything. (laughs) I appreciate hearing all this. So, I'd love to hear some more comments. Uh, Well, I've reached the age where I'm starting to have a few little health problems. And uh, recently, my brother, um, he told me that... um, it was scaring him because he always thought of me as being invincible. And these experiences, you know, I'm, I'm the rock. And the rock is chipping away. It would be weird if it wasn't. <laughs> I, I know, but I, I thought I was invincible too, and I'm not. <laughs> Yeah, in old age and death, decay and death are not mistakes. They're not mistakes. Hmm? They're invincible. They're invincible. Change is invincible. So maybe we have time for one more. Someone would be so kind. I appreciate it. Yes, Bill. I do love the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, and, you know, I never tire of hearing that part of it that you read. And part of me knows, you know, I, I need to be reminded, get used to the idea. No big deal. Uh, but I'm pretty resistant. Um, I think hearing stories doesn't, isn't going to help me let go so much um, and what would um, I've got all these books and articles and essays I want to write and I've got to live long enough to finish them and they're big long involved projects and if I get them published then my name will be on them and so forth and so on and um, I think if I could let go of all that um, I'd be a lot more fearless now, I, do, I think they're good, good things to write. Uh, people would like them, find them useful, I think. But, um, but, but they, they get in the way for me, as far as wedding goes, is concerned. Yeah. So, so when it comes to practice, I've got divided loyalties. You would? Yeah. I have divided loyalties. I've got my book and article projects, and then I've got the practice. And they aren't meshing so well. Well, so you said at the beginning that the you know, stories are not going to do it for you, and um, and you talked about you know you have to maybe you should be more fierce. I think that uh, if you want to do this pr- process here, you're going to have to get serious. 
Until you're serious, it's not going to work. About practice. Okay, so thank you. I, uh, so I hope it was as nice for you as it has been for me to be here with you and to kind of talk about this. And um, so we'll continue next week in this text and um, <clears throat> it gets much safer next week. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all.